In this episode, we interview Brigadier General Mark Maldonado, the current commander of the District of Columbia Air National Guard on career path, and his unique story from humble beginnings to become a commanding general, along with some of his leadership lessons. This episode is the first part of a two-part interview. In this first part, we discuss his background and unique achievement of attaining three Air Force specialties as a pilot, personnelist, and a judge advocate. Here are a few highlights from part one of today's show. Being a JAG is an incredible responsibility, especially for some folks who just, you know, come out of law school. To have that kind of influence over folks, over their their lives, disciplinary issues. But it really taught me a lot about hard work, about doing the best you can at everything you do, and also about embracing opportunities. Welcome to the Air Force Judge Advocate General's Reporter Podcast, where we interview leaders, innovators, and influencers on the law, leadership, and best practices of the day. And now to your host from the Air Force Judge Advocate General School. Welcome to another episode from the Air Force Judge Advocate General School at Maxwell Air Force Base. I'm your host, Major Rick Hanrahan. Remember, if you like the show, please consider subscribing on iTunes and leaving a review. This helps us to grow an outreach to the JAG Corps and beyond. Well, I am very excited for our show today. We have the unique privilege to interview Brigadier General Mark Maldonado, the current commander for the District of Columbia Air National Guard, who also holds the remarkable achievement of attaining three Air Force Specialty Codes, or AFSCs, through his career as a pilot, personnelist, and a judge advocate. A true triple threat, one could say. And he's here today to talk about his career path, and that there is not necessarily a quote-unquote normal career path. From his humble beginnings in Puerto Rico, and then the Bronx, New York, where he first learned to speak English, to his prominent role as a commanding general. Sir, thank you for taking some time out of your hectic schedule to speak with us today. Oh, thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Brigadier General Maldonado pinned on to the rank of Brigadier General this past June of 2019 and has had a truly remarkable and a unique career. He graduated with a Bachelor of Science from the U.S. Air Force Academy in 1991 and commissioned as a second lieutenant pilot in May of that year. He attended undergraduate pilot training at Vance Air Force Base, Oklahoma. From there, he transitioned into a personnelist, earning his second AFSC, where he acted as the Chief of Personnel Utilization and Training at McGuire Air Force Base, New Jersey. Brigadier General Maldonado then moved back into his pilot career path as a KC-135 aircraft commander at both Grand Forks Air Force Base and then the New Jersey Air National Guard from 1994 until 2006. During his transition to the New Jersey Air National Guard, he entered law school and graduated with a JD from Rutgers Law School in 2004. In 2006, he transitioned to his third AFSC as a deputy judge advocate with the 113th Wing District of Columbia Air National Guard. He subsequently became the state staff judge advocate for Joint Force Headquarters of the D.C. National Guard. In his civilian capacity, he worked as a federal prosecutor for the Department of Justice for more than a decade, where he prosecuted large-scale international cases working in the counterterrorism, narcotic, and dangerous drug sections. Brigadier General Maldonado has numerous deployments under his belt, including flying 48 combat sorties over Afghanistan in the aftermath of the terrorist attacks of 9-11. 
Other deployments include Saudi Arabia, Turkey, the United Kingdom, Germany, Japan, Spain, Oman, and Portugal. He also represented the Department of Defense Institute for International Legal Studies as a rule of law, counterterrorism, and counter-narcotics expert instructor in Peru, El Salvador, and the Democratic Republic of Congo. Currently, Brigadier General Maldonado acts as the Commanding General of the District of Columbia Air National Guard and Director of Joint Staff. He is the Principal Advisor to the Commanding General of the D.C. National Guard and manages over 1,200 airmen, civilians, and contractors while ensuring all his units maintain the required readiness for worldwide deployment. Wow, sir. <laughs> there. Um, amazing, amazing background there. Uh, did I at least provide a fair summary? <laughs> no, you did. Thank you so much. Seems like I can't keep a job though, huh? <laughs> I, I'm a bit out of breath, sir. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, we could spend weeks on all the topics that you've touched upon, sir, but for today's topic, we're going to hone in on your career path and any leadership lessons you'd like to provide. Your story starts from humble beginnings and showcases there is no quote-unquote normal career path. We'll also explore some of those transition or inflection points where you move from one career field to another. With that, sir, perhaps you could provide a little more background on your current position as the commander of the D.C. Air National Guard. Yeah, sure. So um, pretty interesting that as a commander of the D.C. Air National Guard, um, we have a very unique base. So I know a lot of your listeners are used to being active duty. Maybe they don't know a lot about what the Air National Guard does. Um, but our unit is about 60% full-time um, folks, and we have a very unique mission in that we're the primary unit in charge of protecting and defending the capital. And so we have uh, 26 F-16s, three seven, four, uh, C-40s, which are 737s. Uh, with the F-16s, we have 24-7 alert. Um, we've responded to over 6,600 events since 9-11. Uh, so that means either launching, either um, uh, being told that we're going to launch and then running to the aircrafts and starting them up and then uh, trying to mitigate any issues in the air. And so basically anybody who sleeps within within about a large distance away from D.C., all those folks are protected by by the D.C. Uh, Air National Guard. Um, so that's that's a heavy responsibility and, and something that we take very seriously. We also fly the three C-40s, and those airplanes fly around the world, and we deploy diplomatic uh, air power throughout the world by taking heads of state, uh, heads of uh, agencies, uh, congressmen, con- you know, and senators throughout the world. Uh, so, so very busy unit. Uh, it's pretty much almost like an active duty unit, if you will, in the way we operate. Yes, sir. Clearly a a very uh, important mission, uh, no doubt there. Now, you've mentioned to me off off air in a prior conversation that you were originally from Puerto Rico and then you moved to the Bronx, New York, where you first learned to speak English. Might you be willing to provide perhaps a little more background on your upbringing, transition to moving to the Big Apple of New York City, learning English, and eventually how you became interested in a military career? Sure. Um, So, you know, I, I was born in, in Manhattan, um, and then shortly thereafter, you know, my mother was about 18, 17 years old when she had me. And, and shortly after I was born, um, I went to live in Puerto Rico with my grandparents. And so while I was there, uh, didn't speak any English there. I think I had some rudimentary English uh, instruction while I was there. But, but literally, when I came back to live in the United States uh, to live with my mother, I didn't learn to speak English until I was about 10 years old. So it took, it took a while. Uh, to do that. But, um, but yeah, it was humble beginnings. 
But I tell you, you know, the funny thing about the Air Force when you get to know people is, is everybody has a story. Everybody that you talk to um, has something they had to overcome in their past in order to get to where they're here. And, and that kind of led to their success. So, um, so it, was, it was a great humbling experience growing up, but it really taught me a lot about hard work, about doing the best you can at everything you do, and also about embracing opportunities. And how did you become interested in the military, sir? So my grandfather used to live in, in New York City, and so he was a carpenter in Puerto Rico, uh, but he was, a, he was a patriot of the United States. And so he always felt that, that we should give back. For, for, you know, so he's one of those folks that, that just uh, believed in, in, in what the United States stood for and, and uh, always imposed on myself and my brother to serve. So my brother ended up joining the Army at some point. Uh, he was enlisted in the Army for a bit. And um, then for me, I decided to, uh, to go to the Air Force Academy and, and then join the Air Force. So if you could place yourself back in your shoes at that time, did you ever imagine that you would become a commanding general one day? No, no, not at all. I, th- I think my, my entire career, I only just looked at, at the, the job I had right in front of me at the time. I never really saw myself going anywhere other than just doing the best I, ha- I could do in the job that I was in. So, no, I, it's 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 very humbling experience. So you went to the Air Force Academy, and, and after you graduated from the Air Force Academy, you completed pilot training at Vance Air Force Base. Mm-hmm. And then you transitioned into a personnel's position at McGuire Air Force Base. Uh, could I ask... How and why did you move into this new AFSC? When I was in pilot training, at the time, there was a shortage of airplanes. And so we, we started off with 60 students in the beginning, um, finished with 30 who graduated from pilot training. Out of those, two of us um, got airplanes right off the bat, and then, and then the rest of us had to wait. And so the interesting thing at the time is, you know, so I was one of the folks who had to go some, you know, to another job. Um, when I got put into personnel, I will tell you that, that it probably wasn't the happiest day of my life because I just saw it as like, oh boy, I really came, I came into this to, to fly, um, to do the specific mission. And then now I'm, I'm moving somewhere else, but it's, it's really interesting how sometimes fate and just, you know, other, other facts come into your, other matters come into your life and then change things and, and a lot for the better. Just because that, that experience gave me a lot. I, I learned so much more about the Air Force than I would have otherwise. And if, sir, could I ask, what was it like transitioning from a pilot into a personnelist? For example, what were some of the biggest challenges that you faced? The, the biggest challenges had to be the number of people so that I had to um, command off the bat. So, for instance, um, you know, when you're pilot training, you're, you're by yourself, an instructor with some other students. Um, and you're pretty much just taking care of yourself. When you transition to a job like a the personnel job, I walked into uh, managing about 77 folks, um, all with different ranks, different backgrounds, different roles that they had to play. And then on top of that, learn all the different regulations, uh, personnel regulations. And, and so it was a lot of information to take in, but also gave me a breadth of experience I wouldn't have had otherwise because I had to learn how to you know, I had to learn how the Air Force operated, just not only from the technical standpoint of you know, the pilot and how to fly an airplane and, and those regulations, but now I had to look at policy from the broader range of how it impacted the entire Air Force and the different regulations that you have to follow and the reasoning behind those regulations. And you also had to learn how to communicate 
uh, more effectively with, with everyone around you because you're managing so many different people from so many different backgrounds. Most of the folks that, that were in personnel at the time in the, in the McGuire office um, were retrainees. And so they, they worked in different jobs throughout the Air Force as well. So I would say about half of those folks who never were brand new to personnel. So, so I had to learn how to make sure we trained them all, make sure that they followed the you know, procedures, make sure to hold people accountable, give feedback. Um, so it, it really opened my eyes to, to a broader Air Force than I would have otherwise. And sitting in your current position today and kind of reflecting upon this, this experience you had as a personnelist, are there any key takeaways you had from this experience? I don't think I'd be where I'm at today if I hadn't had that experience as a personnelist and, and I think especially as a Jack too. So, so I know we can talk some more about that if you want, but I, I will tell you that, that having the, the operational experience as a pilot um, and then I think it's also even operational when you, when you look at the personnel field and the, and the JAG field. I think all three of them have different facets of, of how to lead, how to manage people, judgment, because in order to have good judgment, you also have to have a breadth of experience to pull from. And having had the experience as a JAG, for instance, and as a JAG, you get to see everything. You, you, you know all the different disciplinary issues that are going on in the base. You understand how all the different squadrons work together. And, and you have to do that in order to be effective at your job. And then as a personnelist, I also understood all the different regulations that uh, our members have to follow um, and, and how to hold people accountable. And then you also understood the power of the pen um, in writing policies that, that folks can follow and, and understanding that your job is not just to get up in front of folks and give a motivational speech, but it's also to take a look at it in a strategic way and understand that, that my actions have to have to you know pass the test of time and also where am I leaving this organization and you need to to have policies in place to do that. So since I've taken over this job, uh, we, we've done a number of policies and I've learned also from the JAG side that you don't want to just write policies that you know like a thousand pages long. I mean I, most of the things that I write will be you know about five pages, easy to read and understand, but because I have the background of the impact that would have you know the, on the JAG side personnel side and the pilot side, I think it's helped me be more effective. Great insights there, sir. Thank you for sharing. So you next transitioned back into your pilot career, right, as a KC-135 aircraft commander at Grand Forks Air Force Base, North Dakota. What were some of the challenges of getting back into your pilot's career field? So um, I, I was out of the airplane for about, uh, from flying for about two and a half years. And it really wasn't too hard to, to get back in it, to be honest. I think if anything, when I went to fly, you could see that there's a difference between myself and some of the, uh, of my colleagues who had, who had not been out of the cockpit like I was and who didn't do something else because automatically I was you know, put into the jobs like the, the executive officer position and also the stand, standardization and evaluation section. And those were coveted positions to be in, but because I had the maturity of understanding you know, regulations, understanding different parts of the Air Force, knowing how to converse with enlisted members in a more effective way, those things kind of set me apart from others. So I think my transition was actually pretty, pretty easy. And then around the end of 2000, after approximately nine years of active duty service, you made another large, I would say large career move, and you, you left the active duty. Um, could I ask why you left active duty and what were your plans at that point? I left primarily for, for family and then also to pursue a different career path, something I always wanted to do. So when I was uh, in the Bronx, 
one of the, and, and I had the Air Force Academy recruiter come by to talk to me. I asked, can I go to law school from the Air Force Academy? And, and the response was yes. Although I, I, I think there, there, there's a, there, that really wasn't the answer, right? I mean, it wasn't like a direct transition. But, but, the, but the interesting thing, I was always interested in, in, uh, in being a federal prosecutor and, um, and then hopefully do, doing some good for the community and, and some of the things I saw in the Bronx. I mean, it was, it was not uncommon to, to hear gunshots at night or, um, you know, the, the, the amount of, of violence I saw and, and, and the way I saw people being treated. I always wanted to find a way to, to make a difference and, and, and add to the positive um, story of that. And so, so for me, when, it, when my commitment came up for pilot training, my initial commitment, which was nine years, I had two daughters at the time. And so the decision was, hey, look, you know, to stay full time doing this and being deployed 220 days a year like I was doing that time. Um, maybe maybe it wasn't the best for the family, but I had this other yearning to go to law school. And so I knew that uh, New Jersey and National Guard had a program where they would pay for any school you went to, or, you know, state school. So I can go to Rutgers for free. And so I applied for law school and was able to um, to go there for free, which was great. So it sounds like the two um, main contributing factors was the desire from, from the get-go, right, to become a federal prosecutor and also um, your family's influence. Yes, very much so. And, and why the desire to become a federal prosecutor, sir? Because I wanted to make a difference in the community. I, when I was growing up, I, I, I didn't see a lot of law enforcement activity in a, a positive way when I was growing up, and I just felt like it could be done a lot better. Um, that, that a lot of times when I saw crimes occurring, you know, I mean, I could go on into a lot of stories of how violent things were back then, you know, but uh, I just felt that something could be done to help the folks that, that, that were in the community in order for them to be able to thrive and to just live life without, you know, being worried about safety all the time and, and those issues. And so I just thought that that would be a great way for me to contribute. So during this time, you next transitioned into the New Jersey Air National Guard as a KC-135 pilot and commander. And then the terrorist attacks of 9-11 occur. And you deploy shortly thereafter and had the unique opportunity to fly up to, I think it was 48 combat sorties over Afghanistan. Right. What can you provide? What can you provide to our listeners about that experience? And how had your training experience up to that point prepared you for such an important mission? So I was in my, um, I think I was my first or second year in law school when that occurred, uh, when 9-11 happened. I still remember like it was yesterday, um, just gathering with a bunch of students looking at, at the TV screens and, and wondering what was going on. And then shortly thereafter, uh, my phone rang and I was told to come in and so to the unit. And so I went in there and, and we were flying missions over New York and D.C. about a day or two after 9-11, uh, since we were right there in New Jersey in McGuire Air Force Base. And then by December of that year, we deployed uh, to fly missions over Afghanistan, and that's where the 48 combat sorties came from. I think, uh, you know, I, I tell you, it puts things in perspective. It's what that does. I remember when I was in law school, a bunch of folks were were um, doing interviews for jobs and for internships, and, and they were upset that these things were getting canceled because of, of what was going on with uh, with New York and, and, and the 9-11 attacks. And I remember just thinking, you know, boy, there's, there's, a, there's a bigger mission out there, right? There, there's, there's something more important than, than how much money you can make in a year and, and getting those kind of jobs. And so, 
so I think for me, um, serving has always been a big part of who I am and, and, and serving a mission, serving something that's bigger than ourselves. And so um, I think my experiences up to that point just just led me into just just dropping everything, just saying, hey, you know, it's time to, to do this and, and, and deploy and, and do what we're trained to do. And did that require a break in law school? It did. It did. So I, I graduated in January of 2004. I was supposed to graduate in May of 2003. So, so literally what I did is I, you know, I, I went to school year round um, after I came back from that deployment and, um, and I was able to just graduate six months later. And so you graduate from Rutgers Law School in 2004 and you subsequently become a federal prosecutor. How did your military experiences thus far prepare you for your new civilian career? The ability to handle stress um, and the ability to look at things from a from a bigger picture perspective. I remember uh, I got some feedback after my interview. So, so the job. So I came into the Department of Justice uh, under the Honors Program, and that program had about three thousand applicants, and they hired six people. Wow! Uh, and that was for the for the criminal division, uh, which is where where I, I interviewed and also interviewed for the antitrust division. Was given an offer from them as well. But for the criminal division specifically, I got some feedback from my interview and, and what they said to me, you know, and I, I didn't think I did particularly well because I didn't, I didn't get a lot of feedback uh, when I was talking to the folks, you know, they would just ask me questions. Uh, but one of the one of the members of the panel said uh, to me later after I was hired, he said that was probably the best interview he's ever seen in his life. And he was a prosecutor for over 20 years. And he just said, you were just so calm and collected and um, and, and so confident. And so in a way that, that, you know, just, just made people feel at ease. And so he says, you know, he said to me that your life experiences kind of led you to that. And, and so that, that impressed them the fact that I, had, I was in the military. I knew, I knew what it's like to serve a mission, to serve something above myself, and then to, to also be able to put things in perspective and understand that they just have to take things one step at a time. And so I think, I think they, they felt that and, um, yeah, I got offered the job. So that was great. So it sounds like that was a double one. Your your military experience actually helped prepare you for the job, but it sounds also like that the selection committee viewed your military experience with with great value. They did. They they did. And and I think what they what they valued the most is is a sense of, of mission and a sense of, of um having so, such varied experiences and, and succeeding in those areas that I think for them it's easy to kind of foreshadow that that you'll also be successful with this. And a lot of being a about being a prosecutor is also about judgment. Um, so it's one thing you can learn the books, right? And so you know, you graduate law school, and you know, they can see your GPA and see how how smart you are with, with with those things. But but the other part that that is hard to predict is is this somebody that we can trust to to have the power to charge individuals and to incarcerate folks? And the judgment piece then comes in through all those military experiences because the one thing about the military that sets almost every profession apart is that you get tested. You get tested to the core of who you are um, and how well you can handle stress, how well you can make a decision, how well you can take all the different pieces of information in front of you, assimilate them all, analyze it, and then and then try and make the best decision possible. And I think I think being trusted with judgment um, is, is probably one of the key things you learn in the military because you get tested so often. I think you just keep getting better at it. Absolutely, sir. So now you're a newly minted uh, federal prosecutor. What were uh, some of the, the duties you had to do in your, in your new job? 
some of the duties I had, um, at one point I was uh, put in charge of the entire Southeast United States, all the federal districts. So there's 26 federal districts from Washington, D.C. to Florida to Mississippi, and then also the, the Caribbean. And so my, I was one of six people in the section that were selected to, to do that job. And so my job was to keep up with any uh, terrorism cases that came up, any charging decisions that were made by the U.S. attorney's offices in those districts. I was the first approval um, authority for, for any charges that were, that were being filed. And so the reviewer also uh, had to evaluate whether we should charge it the way that we did um, or whether there's a different way of doing things. Like, for instance, we have one case in which uh, uh, a father was out uh, with a laser pointer messing around with his kids, didn't, didn't have the best judgment in pointing this laser pointer at some aircrafts. Ultimately, the, the decision uh, from the U.S. Attorney's Office was to charge a terrorism charge. And then my decision was no, because we don't want to use terrorism charges in a way that, that goes after parents who you know, may not be exercising the best judgment, but we want to really use this towards actual terrorists. And so, so you know, we have to make sure that we can guard the terrorism charges so we don't use them in a frivolous way that would, would take away the support from the public as we use those, those charges. It sounds also that you, you traveled extensively <laughs> with this job. And mm-hmm. what were some of the um, more significant challenges you had to overcome in that position? Well, it was, it was a 24-7 uh, job. And so... You could imagine, um, so, you know, I had access to secret and top secret systems, traveling to three-letter agencies weekly to meet with them and to, to assess threats against the United States and how well, uh, you know, how best we can mitigate those threats utilizing the legal system. Sometimes that entailed charging folks with, you know, crimes that they committed, but maybe lesser crimes than their actual ones. So we can, we can maybe stop them from doing something or, or traveling to other countries in order to to work with with um, other agencies and, and other governments in order to help us with the terrorism to, to help uh, ter- terrorism and so I would travel to places um, like to Paraguay for instance I was in Paraguay four times and I helped uh, write some some of their legislation some terrorism legislation that uh, they put forward and passed uh, Nicaragua ended up passing some some legislation that, that I ended up uh, drafting and putting some you know editing uh, to. Um, so so we worked um, internationally in order to help the country as well as possible to protect the United States. And so so I traveled to so many different countries um, all all over the world. I, I mean I can't even recall all of them, but I you know I've I've been to as many countries I think as I've traveled in the Air Force with uh, the Department of Justice. Wow. And did the Department of Justice uh, sounds like they leveraged your um, your Spanish speaking ability? Yes, I was actually fortunate enough to be um, an acting uh, legal attaché in the U.S. Embassy in uh, Bogota. Did that for a bit. Uh, from there, I was working with, you know, with the Attorney General of Colombia on extraditions, working policies, uh, helping out uh, with uh, current cases that were working that that orig- you know that were had effects in the United States, but originated. Uh, in another country, had a chance to interview what they're called here, Saltados, uh, folks that were in the FARC who were trying to come back into, into civilian life. And so we had to interview those individuals so they can tell us the full effects of everything they did uh, before they were allowed to come back. And so, so there was, there was so many, uh, experiences that I've been able to have just, just from those jobs alone. I, I must have traveled about four or five months a year 
throughout the United States, but also abroad. And then I also would uh, conduct uh, kind of terrorism training, rule of law training uh, to to folks in different countries. And we we, uh, worked with them to to help understand how how the United States laws work, because whenever you you request information through either like mutual legal assistance treaty from another country, right, or letters rogatory, it was important for those other countries to understand how our system worked so that as we try and exchange information and we try and find a dual criminality for offenses or or to meet each other's requirements in order to exchange information, it was important for those countries to understand how we work because a lot of times uh, when we told the country, no, we're not going to give you that information or we're not going to give you that individual, they would think we just weren't, you know, we, we, we didn't want to help them. But in reality, it was more because they weren't meeting the requirements of, of how to write that. So I would teach other countries how to, how to do that as well. Absolutely incredible experiences there, sir, which I think is kind of a good segue into this next question. Um, in, in September of 2006, you became the, the deputy staff judge advocate for the 113th wing for the D.C. Air National Guard, which now you've, this is your third AFSC within the Air Force. How did your military and your federal prosecutorial experiences prepare you in your um, your new role here as a deputy staff judge advocate? I think it all fused together. For me, I you know I ended up leaving uh, flying at that time because as a federal prosecutor, the demands were so great. And so, what's interesting about about my career so far, if you if you've seen the pattern, is I didn't really plan it at all. I just I just did the best I could in the job that I had. And then I tried to make it all work, right? So, so I ended up switching over to the JAG Corps at that point in time, thinking, you know, my career is probably either going to be what it is. I, I honestly, I didn't, I didn't even think that way. I just thought I'll just, I'll just do this. This will work out better. I can utilize all my skill sets together. So, I, so it all blended in really well. I think the having the experience at that time from being a, a federal prosecutor, I understood already, you know, how, how to try and be the, the best uh, judge advocate I could be. And by that, I mean, just, just working with people, understanding the effects of the job and the grand effects that, that it has, right? And so how seriously you have to take it, because being a JAG is an incredible responsibility, especially for some folks who just, you know, come out of law school, to have that kind of influence over folks, over their, their lives, disciplinary issues, being principal uh, counselors to commanders on, on, on issues that affect thousands of people. Um, I, I think all those different experiences helped me to do all that. And, and clearly, so, you know, you, your, your career path is kind of vectored of different directions. And you probably heard the, the adage that, that no one uh, serves alone. How could you characterize your family support through all these different career transitions? Yeah, no, I, I mean, you, you can't do it alone. You're right about that. And I think, you know, family, it's, it's, uh, can be extended out to even the military family, right? I think, I think you need strong mentorship. I, I will tell you on my family side, I was the first to, to go to college. And I, no one in my family had been to law school or, or had a job that, that I, I guess you could say is more of a, you know, on that scale of schooling that you need to have in order to do it. And so, you know, my grandfather was a, was a carpenter. He's an amazing, amazing man. But the interesting thing is, you know, there was no advice to be had on the family side as to what to do, how to do it, you know, so what, what do I do to law school or what job should I take or anything like that. The, the best advice they would give me is more anecdotal to, you know, have integrity, 
do the best job you can and treat other people with respect. And those are the kind of the advice that I receive from the family side and, and probably the best advice, right? Because most of us look for, hey, how do I get the next job or how do I, you know, how do I make more money or how do I do this? But, but for them, it was just a matter of, of be a good person. On the military side, I've received help throughout my career. There's always been great folks who kind of help you along as you go and, and, um, you know, made some really great friends throughout. So I've got some great JAG friends who, who I keep in touch with. And whenever I fly into where they are, we get together and, and, uh, and talk about the good old days. But no, I, I've, uh, you definitely don't do this alone. And, and that's part of, of what you have to build, um, as, in your, in, you know, as you go through during the military is build your network of people. You know, a network of people that you can trust, that you can talk to honestly about, about, and gets, gets to know you. Not the superficial kind. You know, you know, a lot of people try and get mentors for the sake of like, I want to get this job. I got to get to know this person. That has never, never worked for me. Uh, partly just because I, I'm just not built that way where I, I, you know, I can just go see somebody just for the sake of a job. I care more about what kind of person they are. Um, you know, they're the kind of person that, that does things the right way in the sense that they do the best they can at what they do. Not so much that they're successful all the time, but that they really put an effort into to care about the, the, the mission and care about the people around them and then just to carry themselves with integrity. That concludes part one of the interview with Brigadier General Maldonado. In part two, we dive into his perspective on mentorship, the Air Force, tips for selecting a career path, and thoughts on the JAG profession at large, including a conviction that more JAGs should take command. Thank you for listening to another episode from the Air Force Judge Advocate General School. We'll see you on the next episode. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Air Force Judge Advocate General's Reporter Podcast. You can find this episode, transcription, and show notes along with others at reporter.dodlive.mil. We welcome your feedback. Please subscribe to our show on iTunes or Stitcher and leave a review. This helps us grow, innovate, and develop an even better JAG Corps. Until next time, nothing from this show or any others should be construed as legal advice. Please consult an attorney for any legal issue. Nothing from this show is endorsed by the federal government, Air Force, or any of its components. All content and opinions are those of our guests and hosts. Thank you.